live from New York. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. And here's your need to know. Reddit reaction. U.S. lawmakers question the biggest players in the GameStop saga. Social storm. Facebook blocks news in Australia. Hashtag delete Facebook trends once again. And... Mission to Mars. We speak to NASA's chief just hours before Perseverance touches down. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us as always on the day where Reddit collides with U.S. representatives. Yes, U.S. Congress holding hearings today to ask what on earth happened during the GameStop market mayhem a few weeks ago and if and if so, how they should act. The heads of Robinhood, Reddit, Citadel and even Melvin Capital, that's the hedge fund that got thwacked by the Reddit crowd, will be testifying. Melvin's boss, Gabriel Plotkin, describes being humbled by the massive losses he and therefore his investors suffered. And there's nothing simple about finance. Those investors include charities, retirees and pension funds, among others, according to his statement. Nothing simple. It's going to be a fascinating day, I think, ahead. For now, though, global stocks remain at record highs, but in consolidation mode, though, there's plenty of corporate news elsewhere to keep us busy. In Europe, jet maker Airbus restoring guidance. That's a good sign. The UK banking giant Barclays restoring its dividend and slashing loan loss provisions along with it. Corporate optimism also evident in Asia, too, where China's large cap stock index hit all-time highs. Chinese investors are back from the New Year holidays, of course, and Chinese consumers spent big revenues for big retailers and restaurant chains up almost 30 percent year over year. Box office receipts were strong as an ox, too. We'll be speaking to the CEO of the IMAX cinema chain later on in the show to get his take. Meanwhile, U.S. consumers were spending strong last month, of course, with that data, but optimism has been dulled by the news that another 861,000 people filed for first-time jobless benefits last week. More than 18 million are still seeking benefit help overall. Continued consumer spending is clearly going to require further cash support. And that, as we always discuss, is in the hands of Congress. But today's agenda includes that GameStop probe, and that's where we're going to begin the drivers. Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us. Good morning. I always talk about finance and the operations of finance as a a balance, I think, between access versus safety, whatever type of investor you are. And my fear coming out of this is there's going to be a lot of political grandstanding and we're not going to get to some of the fundamental questions here about whether investor welfare is safe, given the changes that we've seen in terms of access to financial products. What are you expecting? There are real. Well, I expect some grandstanding. That's what Capitol Hill (laughs) grillings are all about, right? I mean, you've got uh, uh, hometown lawmakers who want to make sure that back on their news at home that they're seen as being particularly. 
you know, well thought out about their 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 uh, position on the Reddit GameStop frenzy here. But there are some really legitimate questions that need to be asked here. You know, the the free trading platforms does more need to be done to make sure that individual investors who maybe have never traded before and are trading for free have the right information and the right skills to be able to put themselves potentially at, at risk here. Also about the flow of, of trading, you're going to hear um, from the Citadel Securities as CEO. You're going to hear from the people who run sort of the pipeline of trading about whether there should be uh, different kinds of trading settling times. And that's what some of them are arguing for. And you're going to hear from one of these sort of Reddit bandits, you know, this this guy who, who was the Roaring Kitty character who was really pushing this, you know, was this market manipulation? And was there potentially a systemic risk to the whole system because of what was going on in GameStop? That's what I think you really want to get to the bottom to bottom of here in these hearings. Yeah, there always has to be someone called Roaring Kitty to uh, enlighten our day in terms of uh, congressional hearings like this, quite frankly. I was just looking at the individual opening statements and by far the Robin Hood CEO takes the prize for the longest statement. So it's going to be um, it's going to be quite fascinating to 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 see what he has to say and some of the questions that he gets asked. But to your point, it's a very valid one. Both he and the boss of Citadel say there are fundamental changes that can be made and they can be made very quickly to address some of the challenges we face, where it's that whether it's the settlement mismatch where yes. you do a trade and then that trade settles as a two day gap and that causes funding mismatches, but also transparency over clearinghouses when they ring the person like Robin Hood and say, hey, you've got to stop trading because we need you to hand over billions of dollars worth of cash. I think these are valid arguments. My fear is that they get lost in the sort of beating up of hedge funds that will probably take place. Yeah. Should it be a one-day settlement? Should it be a real-time settlement? What should that look like? And what's the best for individual investors? I think you might also have some uh, uh, lawmakers who are going to be asking about the, the, the sheer act of short selling. You know, yes. the SEC many years ago um, was told it had to start to look into and maybe change some of the rules around short selling and did not. So will there be some sort of discussion here about just naked shorts and short selling? And, um, you know, because the individual investors sometimes I think can't, honestly, you can't get your mind around the fact that if you go short in some of these elaborate options trades, you can lose money to infinity, right? It's not It's not like you, you buy a stock and you lose the money you invested in it. It's, it's a very different, more highly leveraged game on the other side. And you've got individual investors who are going on, on, on Reddit, you know, Reddit board saying, hey, I think I'll do this. I'm going to mimic this trade that someone told me is cool and stick it to the big guy. And they could end up getting in big trouble, too. So I just yeah. there's a lot in there. A CEO of one of the big exchanges um, a few years ago called it anti-American to short sell these stocks. And it's going to be interesting to hear what the, the boss of Melvin Capital says to sort of justify the short position that they took in GameStop here. He said, look, we fundamentally believe the price was was out of line. This is not yeah. a valuable company. And of course, he also described some of the abuse that he got on social media as well, anti-Semitic abuse. The, there's really? going to be a lot of, of questions asked here too about the role of social media and whether there was fundamental market manipulation, because this is a force now in financial markets that we've simply not reckoned with before. You know, is it the new Long Island pump and dump office, you know, with the phone lines and the aggressive, uninformed, Traders who are pushing stocks onto people who maybe didn't didn't have a you know the, the the savvy is this the new age of that in social media? Social media, the new wolves of Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We always have fun, Christine. <laughs> Christine nice to see you. Thank you so much for watching. It's gonna be an interesting day.
All right, another interesting story too. Facebook has blocked users in Australia from seeing and sharing news. This follows a fight with the Australian government, which wants tech giants to pay for the news on their platforms. Brian Stelter joins us now. Brian, wowzers is all I can say about this story for so many reasons. What do you make of it? And then we'll dig into more of the details. Regulators around the world are watching this. So are news publishers. So are lawmakers. All eyes are on Australia right now because of this uh, proposed new media bargaining code that is supposed to help pay publishers for the content that is shared all across big tech platforms. This is about Facebook and Google. And so far, Facebook and Google have given very different reactions to this proposed legislation. Facebook has basically blocked off Australia so that news sites cannot share links from Australia and anywhere in the world if you want to share a link to the Australian Broadcast Network, uh, to any of the other Australian outlets, you can't do it on Facebook anymore. It's an amazing, drastic action from Facebook. It shows how much power they have. Google, on the other hand, is cutting deals with these news publishers, trying to stop this legislation from spreading all around the world. So two different reactions from two big, from two giant players to this real significant push that's been going on for a decade, Julia, by Rupert Murdoch and, and other major publishers saying, you need to pay us for at least a little bit for the damage you've done to our business. Yeah, it's quite fascinating because Facebook's argument here, and I've read their full statement, is, look, we're very different from Google because you know, people right. share news on Google. You can search for a news article. It's there. You get no choice. And perhaps, therefore, Google has to compensate these news producers, these publishers for news. But in Facebook's case, they say, look, the business gain from news is minimal. News makes up less than 4% of the content that people see in their news feeds. And they say, look, actually, these news publishers come to us to promote their news and then they get more subscriptions. So they sort of utilize the Facebook platform. I mean, there are so many ethical questions to be asked here about what Facebook yeah, is doing, is... Brian. You know, they can't turn the tap off on fake news and uh, make judgments over the news that's there, but they can literally turn the tap off in a country. This is as fundamental as the building blocks of the World Wide Web. The idea that on the Internet you can link. The link is everything on the World Wide Web. That's what Tim Berners-Lee uh, invented. And Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, he is concerned about this proposal in Australia because he's worried about how it will spread out, could spread around the world and cause lawmakers uh, in Europe and North America and elsewhere to try to change the business model for these companies. Here's part of what Facebook's Campbell Brown, a former CNN anchor, said in a blog post yesterday. She said, look, contrary to what some have suggested, Facebook does not steal news content. Publishers <laughs> choose to share their stories on Facebook. She says what the proposed law introduced in Australia fails to recognize is the fundamental nature of the relationship between our platform and publishers. And, and look, she is right on the facts there that it's all about a choice. You, you have a choice to share on Facebook or not. But what Rupert Murdoch and other publishers have been saying for many years is that Google and Facebook came in and, and, and ripped the business model right from out from under them. And that Facebook and Google are selling ads uh, you know, around their content while directing you to news content. It, and you it, can argue. A, a, yeah, it's, it's an attempt by Murdoch to rebalance everything in the news business. And if it works in Australia, it will happen around the world.
It's such a great point. And you can argue that we're not they're not stealing content here, but you could argue, too, that they are perhaps stealing the money that flows as a result of that content, whether they choose it or chose it or not, because eyeballs bring in advertisers. The numbers in Australia are shocking. Seventy five percent of people in Australia get their news from social media. It's a study by Oxford University. Mm. Eighty one cents in every dollar of advertising money spent on Google and Facebook. They are Mm. omnipotent. Brian, we spoke to Microsoft, another player in this market. They've got Bing, the search function, too. So they had a vested interest in saying, hey, we'll play ball with Australia. We think paying these publishers is a good idea. But listen to what he had to say about the bigger issue here. You cannot have a healthy democracy without healthy journalism. And we all depend on having a healthy democracy. That means we all depend on having healthy journalism. And so we saw this Australian proposal as an opportunity to step in and stand up for what we think is not just good business for Microsoft, but really a good cause for Australia and the world. Brian, and this goes back to your point. This is not just about Australia. This is fundamental to the functioning of democracies and where our media goes from here and the sources of our media. Yeah, how to finance news. Right. How to finance news, how to pay the bill for news gathering all around the world. But there are some folks that say there's big flaws with the Australian proposal that actually it 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 does this in the wrong way. And there are better ways, maybe taxes to try to finance news gathering in a way that that makes up for the harm that's been done by big tech. Meanwhile, Facebook, by the way, the way that's removed links in Australia, it's also removed public safety sites, health sites. It's taken drastic action that in some ways seems to maybe be backfiring. So Facebook, Google, two very different approaches here. Uh, but, but all of this fundamentally is about how to finance news and whether Facebook and Google should pay up or whether these lawmakers are trying to shake them down. Because honestly, there's a lot of folks that feel like that's what this is all about. It's protectionism. It's trying to shake down these big tech companies uh, for, for a little bit of their profits uh, for the news business. Yeah, it might not be the right answer, but it's an answer and it's a response from the, uh, the, from the Australians here. And actually, the quote of the last 24 hours comes mm. from the Australian prime minister on his Facebook page, uh, which is uh, humorous. <laughs> he said of Facebook, they may be changing the world, but that doesn't mean they run it. Boom. Mm. We like that. And, and final point, delete Facebook. Hashtag delete Facebook is now trending, Brian, which I haven't done the maths on this, but I do believe that is a buy signal, sadly, or however you choose to look at it for Facebook yeah, stock. Right, Nothing right. breaks them here. Yeah. Brian Stelter, thank you so much. Thanks. All right. Here are some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Millions of people in the United States state of Texas face another day of misery with freezing temperatures forecast again and power outages still widespread. But those outages have dropped early today and officials say the outlook is improving. Prince Philip has spent a second night in a London hospital as a, quote, precautionary measure. But palace sources tell CNN there's no reason for concern about the health of Queen Elizabeth's 99-year-old husband. They say he's been feeling unwell for a number of days before being admitted Tuesday night. All right, still to come, movie momentum. Box office sales in China break records as cinema goers rush to return to the big screen. We're joined by the CEO of IMAX. And Mission to Mars, NASA's chief, joins first move just hours before the agency lands a robot on the red planet. That's next. Stay with us.
Welcome back to First Move, live from New York on what's looking like a softer open for U.S. stock markets. Growing concern about the record cold snap in the United States and perhaps how that will impact future growth. We've got large chunks of the U.S. energy infrastructure now offline. Another sector, too, chip production also impacted, further worsening the global semiconductor shortage, vaccine distribution. Another pivotal issue, of course, also being impacted there as well. Elsewhere, Dow component Walmart down more than 5% pre-markets after warning on slowing sales and higher costs. It's ramping up investments and also raising wages for more than 400,000 workers. Nearly half of Walmart's workforce will now earn $15 or more an hour. The firm not hanging around while Congress debates whether a compromise can be found to raise the minimum wage above its current $7.25. But for now, Congress has an alternative focus today, too. In Washington, the powerful House Financial Services Committee is set to hold a hearing on the recent market volatility involving GameStop and other stocks. The CEOs of Robinhood, Reddit, Citadel and Melvin Capital, along with Keith Gill, better known as Roaring Kitty on social media, will be in the hot seat. Democratic Congressman Gregory Meeks joins us now. He's a senior member of the House Financial Services Committee. Congressman, fantastic to have you with us on the show. Can you be specific? What questions do you hope are answered in the hearing today? Well, you know, I'm going to be asking and trying to find out what the potential um, uh, harmful uh, practices that are done by hedge funds, you know, like short selling. So I want to talk and get into that a bit. Uh, potential conflicts of interest uh, between parties uh, that were involved in the events last month, like the relationship between Citadel and Robinhood and the amount of revenue that uh, Robinhood receives by routing its its customers uh, through Citadel. Uh, Want to also be talking about uh, social media uh, and on a on our market, the impact of it. Um, you know, accessibility to the public information for the benefit of retail investors. That's important uh, to me. Uh, and uh, and how trading uh, apps like uh, how they operate on social media uh, and the impact on uh, retail investors. Uh, that That's important. So uh, I'm, I'm looking to, to, to hit listen and hear and try to figure out uh, to make whether or not uh, the rules and regulations that we have in place uh, have kept up with technology of today uh, and whether there's something in addition that the SEC should be doing, uh, whether there's something uh, in addition that the Congress should be doing. Uh, so uh, I'll be listening very attentively and asking questions in, in, in those areas. I think you laid out very cleanly all the different issues to be discussed. And there are so many angles here. I'll just break it down first. Um, The longest opening statement is going to come from the Robin Hood CEO who came under fierce criticism throughout this period. Do you believe that access, free access to trading platforms like Robin Hood encourages excessive risk taking by those that perhaps aren't skilled enough to do so? Well, that's what I want to get into. Look, the truth of the matter is, I understand what Robin Hood was trying to do is to get individuals uh, into the markets so they have an opportunity to, uh, to to make some money also, so that it should not be open just to the big guy. But that being said, that may mean that there needs to be extra protections to make sure that the less sophisticated investor is protected and what kind of information is disclosed to them in advance. You know, uh, for example, you know, I know that uh, 
uh, if uh, you, you, you are investing in certain products, they may be riskier than others. And are they steering people to those risky uh, uh, products? Or uh, is there uh, opportunities where there's full disclosure? Uh, that becomes tremendously important. And so I think that we want to drill down uh, on that to make sure that uh, we are protecting the investor. Um, you know, I want to, for example, we've got this huge wealth gap uh, with different populations in America. I want to close those wealth gaps. Uh, I want to make sure that opportunities are available to all. But I also want to make sure that they are protected. Uh, and that's what this is really all about for me. Are you in favor of, of greater education, maybe even a test that retail investors have to take to prove that they have an understanding, enough of an understanding to invest? Well, I think that we've got to look at that. You know, mm. what I, the, how I come at this, we had one of the worst times uh, for me in Congress was the 2008 financial crisis that took place in the United States of America. And that, you know, not comparing uh, apples to oranges, but that largely became, came because uh, of many institutions doing uh, what we call giving out no doc loans, no documentation to find out whether the person had the wherewithal to participate in adjustable rate mortgages. Well, uh, there are some products that may or may not be for the less sophisticated uh, investor. Uh, and so there should be documentation that may have to flow with that uh, so that we can make sure that we're protecting uh, them. Uh, that everyone's but, protected. I just want to ask you as well, I just want to ask you as well about the business model here, about why and how Robinhood allow people to access the financial markets free. And you made the point about uh, the hedge funds that the market makers, in this case, Citadel Securities and Citadel itself, the CEO, of course, will will be hearing from. um, They pay Robinhood for that order flow. And even the SEC data says they provide a price improvement to, to retail investors, over $3 billion in 2020. Over a quarter of that came from Citadel. It's, it's part of how finance works and giving free access to these individuals. Would you rather have individuals pay to access financial markets and not have that relationship between a market maker, perhaps, and a platform like Robinhood? It's complicated, but it's an important question, I think. I couldn't agree with you more. It's a very important question. It's something that we've got to uh, really uh, get after it, and, and I will be asking uh, that question of, of Robin Hood uh, because you know, you know, they get you know, with the payment uh, for order flow, uh, whether that's the appropriate way, and how much does Robin Hood get as a result, as opposed to paying something up front, which may be more transparent. So that is definitely something that's uh, I think we have to look at and examine. Uh, and uh, this is an opening hearing to do just that. We don't want to wait till something catastrophic happens at the end and say, oh, we should have looked at it earlier. We want to start looking at it uh, from a congressional viewpoint uh, today at today's hearing. I looked at the um, the opening statement from Chairwoman, Chairwoman Walters as well, and it does seem to be pretty anti-hedge fund. And I do think at times we perhaps need to take a step back and understand that hedge funds do have investors that are pension funds, our nurses, our doctors, our firemen, people that do great service, our teachers in this economy too. Do we also have to remember that when we have these discussions as well, Congressman Meeks, because there are many sides to this story? There's no question about that. Um, Mm. You don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What you do is to make sure that the playing field is level, because that's what we want to make sure, that there is transparency, 
that there is rules and regulations so that everyone knows uh, what the risks are up front and due diligence uh, has happened. But I don't think that, you know, I would like to look at, uh, you know, what 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 the effects of, of short selling is, is doing. So that's something that we need, whether or not that's an aspect of uh, hedge funds uh, that we, we, we need to look at. You know, I have questions in my own mind about that. But I'm not saying get rid of hedge funds because hedge funds helps, as you just articulated, average everyday hard workers through pension funds and otherwise uh, be able to uh, have uh, the, the resources that they need for retirement and other, and other areas. So I'm not anti-hedge funds, but I am protect the investors to a large degree, particularly the less sophisticated investor. Yes, I think, and you've said it a number of times, transparency in all aspects here. If we can boost that, it would be key. Congressman, I just want to ask you quickly before I let you go, because I know you have a very busy day. The move by Walmart to raise what it pays workers in some cases beyond $15 an hour, but that for a minimum for many of their workers now. What do you make of, of that decision today? Well, I think it's a step in the right direction. We want to make sure that workers get paid a wage so that they can continue to, so that they can live and survive, so they can pay their rent, buy food, many medicine. Too often we have individuals that have to make a choice of, you know, with the resources they have of uh, buying food or buying uh, some prescription drugs that they may need for their health. Uh, we want to make sure that we eliminate that and people have an opportunity to uh, to uh, live a decent and uh, a decent life and pay their be able to pay their bills and not being exploited. Uh, that's really important. So I think that uh, if Walmart and others will move in that direction, and that's why we're fighting uh, in the United States Congress right now, even as we suffer from the pandemic, to raise the minimum wage uh, throughout this, the United States of America. It's significantly important for, uh, uh, for, for, for cost of living uh, reasons. Seems as everything else has gone up except for wages, so that we've got to have wages catch up so people have a better uh, level of living. A bit more equity. Congressman Gregory Meeks, great to have you with us, sir. We'll chat to you again soon. Thank you for that. Thank you. And the market opening is next. Thank you. Welcome back to First Move, where U.S. stocks are slightly lower to start the session today. The Dow falling from record highs hit yesterday. Disappointing jobless numbers not helping either. More than 860,000 more people filing for first-time benefits last week. Again, claims continue to go in the wrong direction. Bit of softness as well. Bitcoin bulls taking a breather after the cryptocurrency rose to a record of over 52,000, just dipping below that. But crypto challenger Ethereum is in the ether, hitting all-time highs. Metals sparkly today too. Copper hitting its highest level in almost a decade as Chinese investors roar back after the New Year holiday. China, of course, one of the world's biggest copper consumers. What did we call it? The Everything Rally. Another reason to rally. China's movie theaters are back in business post-pandemic and are selling more tickets than ever. Box office sales for Lunar New Year opening weekend smashed 2019's record, topping it by some 33%. It was a blockbuster weekend, too, for immersive movie brand IMAX, which took in $25 million in China 
45% more than in 2019. And joining us now is Rich Gelfond, CEO of the IMEX Corporation. Rich, always a pleasure to have you on the show. We'll go around the world, but I do want to start in China. Is this the sign of pent-up demand coming back? No question, Julian. Thank you. It's nice to be back on your show again. I mean, when you exceed your previous record um, as an industry by one third and as a company by 45 percent, that tells you something is going on. So even the absolute number for people who don't follow Chinese box office, it did $755 million its opening weekend, and now it's over a billion dollars in box office. So that tells you once people feel safe, once the theaters are open, once there are things they want to see, they weren't staying at home anymore. They were dying to get out. And even after the weekend, they keep going in record numbers. You know, it's quite fascinating as well when I look at what they're watching. Clearly, Hollywood in particular has had a torrid time with the pandemic. But if you look at the share of international movies that are being watched, that's collapsed as well. I think it was, what, 36 percent of receipts and now it's gone down to 16 percent. Have the Chinese had enough of, of international movies or do you think this is just a temporary trend? Oh, it's absolutely a temporary trend. I mean, there are virtually no Hollywood movies being released in China. And in fact, the one, the few that were released were released simultaneously on a streaming service somewhere else, or they were released on PVOD. So they released the same day in China. They released digitally. And as you know, Julia, China historically has a, um, a problem with uh, piracy. So mm. when you release digital and the same time online, it's not going to work. But the, you just, the magnitude of these numbers, there's just no question. When movies open up day and day in the rest of the world in theaters and not online, the consumers in China are going to come back for those movies as well. It's just what's available at any uh, given time. I remember when, you had, when we had you last on the show, you said, look, we're looking to expand our network by around... 50% over the next three years there. And I know the region's not just about China, but does that feel conservative, even given what we've been through in light of the kind of numbers that you're seeing? You know, it's hard to make any predictions until the pandemic ends. So as good as the box office results are in China and as encouraged as I am um, for the future globally, you have to remember in, in Europe and the U.S. and South America and other places, it's still closed because vaccinations aren't going as quickly as hoped and, um, and the virus is still spreading. So I would hate to give expansion numbers at this time, other than to say I am confident when they open, it's going to bounce back. And I think we're probably you know, three months or so away from that starting to happen. I'll use your phrase because you always describe it as eventizing the cinema. And that's what you say will keep IMAX and your product resilient in the face of the growth of streaming that we've seen, particularly over this period, Rich. But I just wonder, to your point about vaccines, can you envisage a future where, as the CEO of IMAX, you say, you know, if you haven't had a vaccine, you're not coming to watch a movie? You know, I think that's a very difficult place to be. And part of the reason is, for example, in North America, under 16 years old, you're not even allowed to get a vaccine. So what are you going to say? Kids aren't allowed to go to movies and enforcing it and a lot of things. So certainly I think there'll be masking requirements for a while. And certainly there's going to be safety health protocols that endure after people are vaccinated. But the requirement of vaccines until 
they're they're given universally, I think, is is a long shot. What about elsewhere in the world? I mean, we've spoken to CEOs. The CEO of Air Asia said he can envisage, particularly in regions in Asia, where they say you're not coming in if you don't have a vaccine. Well, Japan hasn't even started to vaccinate, and the theaters there have been open uh, through much of this period. And they just had their biggest movie of all time called Demon Slayer, which um, broke IMAX records, broke records there. So it, again, it, it, it's such a local cultural kind of thing. And look at China. Um, they've largely achieved where they are, not through vaccination, but through regulation. So again, pre- we're in 82 countries, as you know. So understanding and predicting how they're all going to react from a legal point of view is, it, it, it is above my ability. I know. I know it's tough, too, to make predictions, but give me a sense of recovery timing as we push throughout this year. And I will just make a slight correction because we talked about it on the show earlier this week. Japan has started vaccinating its um, healthcare workers this week, which is a good sign, Rich. Um, give me your forecasts. Um, well, I'll talk about North America and, and Western Europe. Uh, I'm thinking May, June is when they start to open in a bigger way. Keep in mind, many theaters are open in the United States. It's it's around 50%. They just have very limited capacity and very limited hours. It's only 30% of the box office potential is open. But when you listen to the sages like Dr. Fauci say that by June, anyone who wants a vaccine, maybe sooner, will be able to get it. I think our best guess is May, June, things really start to open up. And then Sometimes over the summer, and there are fantastic blockbuster movies coming this summer, Uh, Jurassic World, the new Top Gun movie starring Tom Cruise called Maverick, Bond later in the year. So I think there's wonderful things, but I'm not sure it'll be completely normal till around summer. I find when guests talk to me about their predictions of um, of recovery and getting back to normal, I just find myself crossing my fingers. Rich Galfond, uh, uh, cross our fingers uh, and I hope you're too. right. <laughs> All of them, everything. The CEO of IMAX Corporation. So thank you, as always. Thanks. All right, coming up after the break, a new robotic resident on the Red Planet to solve some burning Martian mysteries. We're live with NASA ahead of today's landing of the Perseverance rover. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. It's come a long way, 300 million miles or nearly 500 million kilometers to be precise to help us understand our place in the universe. You're watching a landing simulation of NASA's Perseverance rover and if all things go to plan, that will happen in a few hours time. Once it's on the Martian surface, the rover will join other unmanned missions already underway. It will search for ancient life and test the atmosphere and it'll even launch a helicopter, a first for another planet. All of this paves the way for manned missions in the future. And I'm excited to say Steve Jerzyk is acting administrator at NASA, and he joins us now from their jet propulsion facility in Pasadena, California. Steve, fantastic to have you on the show today. An incredibly exciting day. Yes, it is. And thank you for having me on. Talk to me about what's going to happen over the coming hours and what work will begin. Yeah, so um, last week we uploaded the final software to the spacecraft and the final parameters. So since last Friday, it's been operating autonomously. 
Um, and so around um, 12.55 Pacific time, 12.55 p.m. Pacific time today, um, the uh, entry capsule is going to separate from the crew spacecraft, and we're going to enter the top of the atmosphere of Mars at about 13,000 miles per hour. Um, we'll use rocket engines on the back of the capsule to guide the vehicle through the atmosphere and slow down to about 900 miles per hour, where we'll release a parachute um, at, at very fast speed, supersonic. That'll slow us down to about 200 miles per hour. And then we will uh, fire up a vehicle, eight rockets en engines on a vehicle called the Power Descent Vehicle. And that will take us from 200 miles per hour to a couple of miles per hour above the surface. Tethers will lower the rover down on the surface and we'll cut those tethers and that vehicle will fly away and crash into the surface of Mars. So that takes about seven minutes. A lot of things have to go right in the right, the right time during those seven minutes. And so we've, we've called those, that time the seven minutes of terror. Yeah, where everybody holds their breath and uh, keeps their fingers crossed. Let's assume it all goes perfectly. Everything, soft landing, we're all happy. Explain this project because we're looking for signs of life, signs of water, microbial life up to, what, three billion years ago when we believe water was flowing. And if we indeed find further evidence of that, how does it help facilitate what else we're doing and hope to do in space? Yeah, so this is a really exciting mission because... We have a really capable, first-of-a-kind science instruments on the rover, right, to look for uh, signs of ancient microbial life, like you said, when Mars was much warmer, much wetter. Um, we also have instruments to uh, examine the geology of the planet and the, and, the, and the atmosphere and to get the geological history and climate of the planet. Um, we even have a radar, uh, a ground-penetrating radar that will look down 30-plus feet um, into the ground to uh, determine the layers of soil or what we call the stratigraphy in the ground. That kind of gives you a geological history of the plant. So the science is amazing. We have multiple technology experiments. Um, there's one as part of entry, descent, and landing. It's called terrain relative navigation. It'll allow us to land in the Jezero crater and avoid hazards like rocks and hills. Um, and we have an uh, instrument called the Mars Atmospheric Institutionalization Experiment, and it's going to generate um, oxygen from atmospheric CO2. And that's important for laying the groundwork for future missions to Mars, where it'd be very difficult to bring everything with us, water and oxygen and even even rocket fuel. So that'll be the first demonstration of living, sort of living off the land, right? Can we generate oxygen from atmospheric CO2 for breathable air, maybe liquefy it for oxidizer for propulsion systems. So, and then um, we have the Ingenuity helicopter, be the first heavy there to air vehicle to fly on another planet. That's gonna be really exciting. And, uh, and the, the last aspect of the mission is we're gonna be caching samples, um, drilling core samples, putting them in tubes, capping them and laying them on the surface of Mars for a future mission called Mars Sample Return, which is a really strong collaboration between NASA and the European Space Agency. And that's scheduled to launch right now in 2026, and it would bring those samples back in the early 2030s. So we have a lot of scientific instruments and it's gonna do amazing scientific research. We've got numerous technology demonstration elements of the mission, and then we're gonna cast samples to bring them back to Earth so we can examine them with uh, laboratory instruments back 
uh, back in state, using state-of-the-art instrumentation. Steve, oh my goodness, I have about 40 other questions to ask you, but I just let you talk because it's all so fascinating. So you're going to have to come back soon. Um, just very quickly, because I have about 40 seconds. Obviously, you're acting administrator, a shift change between the Trump and the Biden administration. I'm very excited to say the Artemis program, which is going to put the first woman on the moon um, very soon. And of course, the next man is going to carry on. What's going to be the biggest difference? Yeah, so I think, you know, we're no major changes to the elements of the program. So we'll still have a lunar gateway around the moon. We're still going to do surface missions on the moon of, of increasing duration and use use the moon to prove out capabilities to eventually for eventually you mission to Mars. So we're looking at budgets and timelines. That's what we're doing right now to make sure that, you know, the budgets we have support a schedule with acceptable probability of success. So we'll be doing that work over the coming months. But, yeah, we're really excited that the Biden administration early, very early, has um, indicated their support for Artemis and for our lunar plans and for eventual uh, human mission to Mars. Yes, they share the enthusiasm, which um, I'm very pleased about to watch this space, literally. Steve Jersey, great to have you with us, Acting Administrator at NASA. Thank you for that. We'll keep our fingers crossed. And the landing will be streamed live at nasa.gov at around 3.55 p.m. Eastern Time. That's just before 9 p.m. in London. Thank you again, sir. All right, coming up after the break, one of the most powerful women in finance talks to our Richard Quest. She's gone from Madam Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund to become Madam President of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde. And Richard, for next. Welcome back. The president of the European Central Bank says the pandemic has left the world in a, quote, unbelievable, exceptional situation. Christine Lagarde says global economic stimulus measures are na- needed now. Richard spoke exclusively to her a little earlier and he joins us now. Richard, I think our audience need to understand how ex- exceptional it is that she spoke. So congratulations on that. What more did she have to say? <laughs> The ECB president is walking that fine line. Former central banker, <clears throat> former head of the IMF, and sorry, former uh, finance minister, former head of the uh, IMF, now at the central bank. And it's a completely different role she has to play, one of price stability and monetary stimulus. At the same time, of course, as her old friend Janet Yellen is doing the same thing at the Fed. But people are now saying, uh, Julia, that there's too much money, the prospect of too much stimulus, certainly in the US. Now you look at a couple of trillion in the EU. Well, the president of the ECB denies that there's any risk of too much money moving about. There is the stimulus that is needed around the world because the world in this is in this unbelievable exceptional situation and the stimulus is needed now janet speaks from a position where she's now a uh, secretary of treasury and she goes big with fiscal when i said no limits and we have to go fast and we have to go big that was back in march i was pe- speaking from a position of central bank governor what is characteristic of this particular crisis is that we go hand in hand. Fiscal and monetary did not work so well together back in 2008 or 2011 in Europe. And very often you heard the central bank governors saying, you know, it cannot just be about monetary policy. We are not the only game in town. You don't hear that anymore because both on the fiscal front and on the monetary front, 
policies are working hand in hand and are really laying the ground for recovery to take hold after we have done with that period where economies have switched off. Now, this is fascinating because what she's admitting is that more has to, the, the, whatever has to be borrowed will need to be borrowed regardless of any inflationary pressures, although nobody's seeing that at the moment. And this idea of going hand in hand, monetary and fiscal, which is different, uh, she said, she said she also told me that she'd never seen such cooperation at the national level. But the problem, Julia, is that the EU funds that they've borrowed will devolve down to the national level and the regional level. And there she's worried about implementation and how the money actually gets spent. Yeah, and they're still arguing over how to do it. But Richard, you yeah. raise a great point and we've said it since the beginning. Inflation, who cares? Debt, who cares? Deficit, you will. who cares? You will. We just have to spend. You will. You will, Julia, you will care about inflation one day and you will care about that deficit one day. Just not today. <laughs> Thank you. And I look forward to watching more of that interview on Quest Means Business. Once again, Thank great you. job. An ECB president that speaks. Good job, Richard. I just mentioned there, yes, Christine Lagarde, more of that interview on Quest Means Business later on. And I will be there with you too. Okay, that's it for the show. Thank you, Richard. And if you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages in the coming hours. You can search for at CNN. Stay safe, connect the world. Becky Anderson is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.